a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a Tuesday and that means it's time to catch up with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. I've got a, a kind of beaten up jet airplane in my backyard if you're interested in it. <laughs> ah, finally, the search is over. <laughs> An $80 million aircraft and it's, uh, and yeah, it, it comes up missing. That's, wow. Hmm. Very, very curious. I, I mean, Go ahead. Go ahead. I'd like to you get you to it. it? Um, well, I mean, I don't know what to think about it other than it strikes me as rather odd. Uh, my understanding is that the thing um, had some kind of a some kind of issue that caused the pilot to eject. I think over South Carolina. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so you'd figure that the crash and all of that would have made a lot of noise, and somebody would have figured out where it was. And don't they track those things on radar? So I understand after a certain point, the thing would have you know lost enough altitude that it would have dipped off radar. But wouldn't they have like a pretty good idea probably where the thing was, and and maybe send out some crews to find it? I, I don't know what to make of it. What do you make of it? Um, I, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy nut when I say this, but this is something everybody is talking about right now, including us. And I just wonder what it's distracting us from. It's, it's the, it's the kind of story that, wow, look at this. And you know, nobody can explain it. And you know, the U S government, oh, they've got egg on their face and $80 million jet just disappears after the pilot ejects, but it flies off. Something doesn't add up. And to me, it just feels like a distraction, but that's, that's just my take. No, you know, I actually think you've just hit it. I uh, feel kind of special this morning and that that thought didn't occur to me. But you're, you're absolutely correct. At just the moment when the House is proceeding with the impeachment proceedings and the inquiry uh, into the affairs of the Biden family, and uh, it seems like every single time something like that pops up in the news, there's some other thing that pops up in the news. Remember the spy balloon thing in yes. last, last summer or whatever it was? Exactly. You know, the, 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 it, like clockwork, every single time the, the heat gets a little high, over here, they say, look over here, and it works. And it's a, you got to admit, it's a pretty sensational story. You know, I mean, this big high-tech, this is, a, apparently, this is supposed to be like the stealthiest, most high-tech jet in our arsenal, at yep. least that's, you know, not, you know, under some black program. But, uh, yeah, it's got everybody, you know, focused on it. And I'm, I'm just looking around going, okay, what am I missing here? Well, the one thing I take from it, leaving aside the distraction aspect, that kind of makes me feel good is that it shows that the government's not as sophisticated as we worry it might be. Very true. You know, if they lose track of something like that, I think it's going to, it probably means that they're going to have a tougher time keeping track of us. But then again, you're probably right that it's just a distraction. Yeah, I mean, boy, they, they had no problem find, still finding all those people who were in Washington, D.C., or might even have, have shown a sympathetic eye towards January 6th. But, uh, yeah, that uh, that state-of-the-art fighter jet, oh, we don't know. I don't know. It's somewhere out there. <laughs> Apparently, it did crash in a field somewhere in, uh, I don't remember where it was. It could have been in South Carolina. It, it's it been found, but I'm just not blind. I'm not hip to that particular aircraft. Do they carry nukes? Uh, that I don't know. You know. A lot of people, are. you may, you may know about this already, this is, there have been a number of occasions where uh, the Air Force has lost nukes, uh, including, I think there was an incident in 
I want to say the 60s, maybe. Yes. Um, I think it was a B-52. I'm not sure which it was. But anyway, they inadvertently dropped a bomb. And it, it went into the it went into the uh, the ocean not too far offshore, and they never found it apparently. Yeah, that's that's the stuff from a Tom Clancy novel too. I mean, I think he wrote uh-huh. he wrote about that. You know, a, an Israeli nuke that went missing and was found by the wrong guys. And I don't know. We <laughs> we live in such a crazy time, though. You know that stuff like that. You know, you have to ask questions as to. What what could this possibly be? Uh, what could this possibly lead to? What could it possibly be keeping us from seeing? And and of course, th- there's no shortage of weirdness there. You and I were joking around a little bit before uh, we came on the air about uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert from uh, yeah. Colorado, and and apparently some uh, impolite behavior taking place in a, in a darkened theater. Yeah, and, and and thereby providing yet another stupid distraction from things of importance. You know, she was she and her a boyfriend apparently were. Uh, a little bit grabby and touchy feely in, in an area where there were cameras, and so now egads the humanity. So that's that's obviously a crisis that the American people need to occupy their time and minds with. And by the way, that's you zeroed in on something there that that I think a lot of people missed, mainly because you know there was boob grabbing going on, and that's what they're focused mm-hmm. on. But infrared cameras in the theater. I mean, where yeah. else? Where else do we have this see in the dark, uh, all seeing eye spying on us? I'm just. It shows you that uh, really there is there is no place now that's not under observation. No, including your vehicle. You know, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but uh, I, I just got a brand new uh, Ford F one fifty Raptor R, which is a you know a magnificent vehicle. It's got a seven hundred horsepower supercharged V eight in it, uh, and lots of fun to drive. But as I'm driving it, I'm just kind of glancing around the interior, and I'm looking at the uh, the left A pillar, you know, which is the structural part of the the vehicle on either side of the windshield, um, and there's a freaking camera of some kind there that's pointed directly at the driver. I mean, I don't know what the purpose of it is. It may have something to do with this impaired driving technology that they are going to uh, have to put into cars per federal mandate, beginning with the 26 model years. And I'm sure a number of manufacturers, possibly Ford, I don't know it for a fact, but I'm sure they're anticipating 2026 and they're probably beginning to put this stuff in the cars ahead of schedule. Okay. That's, that's a little bit chilling. Now my car is my car is watching me too. Um, it's it just seems like there's there's very little um, escape from either devices that are listening to you. I'm sorry, our phones. I love having my phone, but yep. it's listening all the time. Actually, I saw a very interesting video this last week. Um, if you have an iPhone, um, if you have infrared an infrared camera, hold up your iPhone and let it do the facial recognition thing. But to have the infrared camera on. This couple was showing, and apparently others were proving it too. Your iPhone will take an infrared photo of your face every five seconds when you're looking at it. Isn't that it. great? What, what's that, that all great? about? I know. Well, you know, all of these pincers are kind of coming together. You know, with regard to cars, uh, people hear uh, that the government has mandated impaired driving uh, technology. And they think, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't drink and drive. I don't take drugs and drive. The problem is how you define impairment. And the way they're going to define it is anything uh, that they consider to be uh, aggressive, like, for example, accelerating too quickly, changing lanes too abruptly, braking uh, too hard. All of those kinds of things are going to be uh, associated with what they'll call impaired driving because they want to box you in. And, you know, the technology in the car, it's no accident that these cars already have lane keep assistance technology, automatic emergency braking. And if you've been in a new car, you know, the thing tries to correct your steering. It, it hits the brakes when it thinks you need to stop and all of that. 
And it's just a matter of, of all of this stuff coming together where you're effectively no longer the driver unless you do exactly what they tell you to do, at which point, why even bother? Why not just, you know, call an Uber and, uh, and be done with it and let the Uber guy drive. You you kind of allude to this in your, your article about uh, ensuring you'll stop driving. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's bad enough you're forced by law to buy insurance, but, uh, you know, now insurance, you know, gets to call a lot of the shots. Well, we want the car to monitor this and we want it to monitor that. Well, there's that aspect of it, but you may have read, I read, and that's the basis for the article about how uh, people are getting their, their premium renewal notices in the mail, and they're getting massive premium increases for no particular reason, uh, in, regarding themselves anyway. You know, they didn't get a, a traffic ticket. Uh, they didn't file a claim, nothing. You know, they're just getting a 20%, 30% increase. Um, and it's getting to the point for a lot of people that insurance is becoming unaffordable. You know, that's already driven teenagers largely out of the, you know, the new car or even the used car market, because unless their parents help them, what teenage kid is, is going to be able to come up with 2500 bucks or 3000 bucks a year uh, to insure a card. So what happens? They say they don't drive anymore. The heck with it. And they buy a phone instead. Man, it's, it's funny. We were just having this conversation with my 18-year-old son, and um, he and his sister chipped in and bought a car together. And my wife had mentioned something about, uh, you know, being, being an adult. And he says, speaking of uh, being over 18, uh, maybe we should talk about a title. I said, yes, let's do. And while we mm-hmm. are talking about it, let's talk about paying for your own insurance. And suddenly the topic mm-hmm. was off the table. I was like, well. <laughs> I'm a lot of curiosity. How much does, it, how much does the, uh, the mafia charge you to insure your son? I'm not sure. And it's because the, the rate has gone up just recently. We just got the latest uh, premium notice, and my wife was uh, actually complaining to me about it. I couldn't give you an exact amount, but I know that it, it jumped significantly. So you're, you're right on target. Yeah, I mean, my uh, you know, my girlfriend, Dawn, uh, she just got her premium uh, adjustment in the mail. She's had no accidents. You know, she's not a teenager, uh, no tickets, no nothing. And they just jacked up her, her premiums considerably. And she's got a 2005 model year uh, RAV4. And she's paying like like something like, I don't know, I think it's $600 a year for this card. And that's basic coverage, you know, for a grown-up adult who's responsible and has a, a clean driving record. I can't tell you exactly what our insurance payment is, but I know that uh, what we pay to insure uh, my wife, myself, and two of our sons as drivers is uh, a good, healthy car payment on on a decent car. I mean, we could we could be yeah. we could afford a pretty nice vehicle for what we're paying monthly in insurance. Well, as, as push comes to shove, what's going to happen is that people are not going to be able to afford the car and the coverage anymore, and then they're going to have to choose one or the other. Here, here. We'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com in just a few moments. If you'd like to visit his website, you'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, um, I heard something. It was just a rumor, but I heard that maybe there was enough of a glut of, uh, I can't remember if it was new or used vehicles on the market that we might actually start to see some auto prices coming down. Is that is that just wishful well, partic- thinking? Well, it's wishful thinking when it comes to non-electric cars. Ah. Uh, the, price, <laughs> the prices on those have, have gone up. But there is a glut of electric cars, and you can get a fantastic deal now 
<laughs> an EV, you know, if you, if, if you don't mind buying a car with uh, a third to half the range of a standard car that makes you uh, plan your life around charging. Um, and it's interesting that at just this moment when the, uh, the, the big three are hemorrhaging money, um, Ford CEO Jim Farley recently had to uh, uh, change the estimated losses from electrific- electrification from 3.5 to $4 billion. Uh, and uh, at just the time when they're losing money, the UAW, which is the big union that represents most of the auto workers that work for the big three, uh, is going on strike, and they are demanding a, uh, a pay raise over the course of about four years of about 40%, uh, which they say will not cause the price of new cars to go up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, the really crazy thing about it, though, it's not crazy, it's sad, in that you know the, the UAW ought to be really worried about all of the union jobs that are going to go away as a result of electrification. Uh, you know, electric cars are simpler than non-electric cars. It's a skate. It's a skate with a battery. The battery is largely made by robots. The, the battery uh, goes uh, onto the skate, and then the extruded plastic body goes onto the top of it. So it's pretty simple to make it. It needs fewer workers to make it. So, uh, you know, they really ought to be thinking about how many jobs are going to go away. And, and the underlying reason for this, 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 this nonsense, this hysteria about the climate crisis they need to challenge that and, and and get things back on track so that they can be, go back to making actual real cars that work. But they're in this conundrum. They can't do that because if if they do that, they go against their, their political base. You know, these people tend to be uh, heavily on the Democrat side, and the Democrats are all in on the climate crisis. So instead, they're trying to get the, the car companies to give them more money that they're not going to have to pay them for work that there isn't going to be for them to do. Wow. Well, I think like a lot of people, I, I look at, there was a time when unions probably did some good, but then I hear stories like this and I think, I mean, they probably yeah. have outlived their, their usefulness at this point. Well, I agree. I don't have any issue whatsoever with collective bargaining, you know, because I understand that corporations can be oppressive. Uh, that in principle is not necessarily a bad thing, but the process got really corrupted among other things by uh, eliminating free choice. You know, we, we all know about the right to work laws. Uh, and the idea that you, if you want to go to work for a company, in some states, you don't have the, the op- option to say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm fine with representing myself. You're forced to join the union and thereby cede and give up your sovereignty to this organization that then uh, bargains on your behalf. That's really the problem. I think if unions were entirely voluntary, people were free to choose to join them or not. Much of the corruption and much of the problems wouldn't exist. Wow. So I want to throw a question at you. It's kind of out of left field here, but uh, Eric, seeing as you live in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, I feel safer asking this question of you than I would of most people. Um, I hear the term national divorce on occasion, which for some reason seems to bring out the murderous tendencies in some people. You try to leave, we'll kill you. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, oh, okay, General Sherman, I didn't Mm -hmm. see you sitting over there. But what's your take on, on national divorce? I see some irreconcilable differences. I know not everybody's going yeah. to agree with it. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I think everybody does agree with it, just about. I mean, outside of some very hardcore religious communities, most people uh, accept that while uh, you know, marriage is a serious thing, and, and it should be hewed to, uh, to the extent that it's possible. In some cases, a point comes when a couple can't live together any longer. They just can't work it out. They weren't well-matched, whatever the case may be. And when that happens, uh, most people agree that the proper thing to do for both of their sakes is for them to separate and, 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 you know, have their own separate lives. And yet somehow that same concept doesn't seem to apply 
on a, a broader scale when we're talking about cultures, people, societies, and countries, which of course it does. It's exactly the same principle. If you can't, if you disagree profoundly with a person, you cannot be in close association with them. You're going to be at war with them constantly. And what we've lost, I think, is the national consensus where most people in this country agreed in general on most things, the rule of law, private property, respect for individual rights, all of those things. And there are a lot of people in this country who do not share those points of view anymore, and you cannot agree with them, and they're not going to agree with us. So the choice is either we figure out a way to separate ourselves for both our own sakes, or we're going to have to deal with it in another way, and that's a horrible way, in my opinion. I'm with you there. I, I want to believe that there there is growing support, but it just seems like there's there's this mindset that has been drilled into a lot of people, and it's probably, you know, a.k.a., you know, well, what would Lincoln have done <laughs> in, in that mm-hmm. situation? And they feel like— Well, well we know it? what Lincoln did. Yes. yes. You know, isn't it insane? You know, Mencken, H.L. Mencken, the, the, the great newspaper columnist for the Baltimore Sun back in the 20s and 30s, wrote a wonderful little article about uh, the Gettysburg Address and uh, what a magnificent piece of poetry it was, and yet at the same time the most affronterous piece of outright lying imaginable in that uh, Lincoln tried to talk about uh, the consent of the government, of the governed, you know, the government of the people by the people shall not perish from this earth, when it was Lincoln himself who, who, who fielded armies to do exactly that, to, to just take away the consent the, the Southern people, the Southern states, simply wanted to be governed by themselves, and they attempted to secede, and Lincoln used force of arms to prevent that from happening. And he had the audacity to tell people that he was doing it for the sake of preserving the consent of the governed. Right, right. Well, and, and you know, I think it was uh, Lysander Spooner who, who talked about how, um, and I know this makes people's heads explode, the South was the one that was fighting for self-determination, not the North. Yes. Well, exactly no, they were right. fighting for slavery. Well, that's what the textbooks tell you, but let's remember who wrote those textbooks, and that was uh, sure. the, the court of the winners. You know, the issue gets confused, uh, I think, because the South fired the first shot, that it was maneuvered into doing, and it did it foolishly, which was really, really incredibly foolish on the part of the Southern leadership when they uh, barraged Fort Sumter in, uh, in South Carolina. They should have waited and just let the North, if the North was going to do it, make the first aggressive move, because that would have made things very clear about who was the aggressor in the conflict. Agreed. Yep. Well, okay. I'm sure this has got some people's blood pressure going, so I'll I'll let it go. But I just, Mm -hmm. I wanted to get your take. I see in some circles, you know, growing support for, look, if we can't get along, we should break into regions and and maybe that would be a better way to go. Um, I would tend to agree. I'd rather see the divorce happen peacefully than than to go the route of the Balkans. Yeah, well, you know, the instructive example is what happened to the old Soviet Union, which was composed of a variety of different, different ethnic groups. They, they were the, you know, the states of the Soviet Union. That's what they were actually called, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And after the Soviet Union fell apart, it was understood that these, these different groups of people, like, for example, the Ukrainians, uh, who are very different people from uh, ethnic Russians. They have a different culture. They generally have a different religion. They're just different. Uh, that it would be better for, okay, here, you Ukrainians, you've got your country, you're, you're in Ukraine, and the Russians have Russia, and so on and so forth. And by and large, until this current nastiness that was fomented by the U.S., by the way, until that happened, you know, they, things were going relatively well over there for those people, better than being forced to live collectively in this 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 fictitious, unnatural country that most of the people in it aren't happy with. The same happened to the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, that once... 
uh, encompass so many of the, the now independent countries of Eastern Europe. You end up in this polyglot situation where people don't feel that they're a part of anything. And at the same time, they feel threatened because there are various groups that are vying for control over the power, the political power that will possibly be exercised against them by some other group. I think we're going to see that writ large in terms of how people behave next year. Um, Even my kids, who I would like to not have to bear this burden, are talking about next year's going to be pretty interesting, isn't it, Dad? And I'm just, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No matter how it goes. You know, no matter how it goes, you know, if if we even have elections, but let's assume for the sake of discussion that we do, and let's assume that Orange Man is on the ticket, and let's assume that Orange Man uh, manages somehow to win, can you imagine what's, what the left will do in that case? I can't. I don't want to, I guess I should say. No, nor I. Eric, great to visit with you as always. I feel like I've got my sanity restored in part here. <laughs> Thanks again for your time. Okay, I'm going to go out and pick a part through that F-35 that's in the backyard. <laughs> Good luck. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. By the way, a quick shout out to my sponsors. I do appreciate them, and you'll find them on my website at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just click on the link, take you right to them. You can check them out. If there's something they have that you need, I would ask you, please do business with them or at least tell them thanks for sponsoring this program and making it possible. So let me ask you a question. And and some of you will have heard this before. If you're a married individual, uh, you probably heard this, maybe even put it into practice. Here's the question. Would you rather be right or happy? (laughs) I know that there's truth to this. You know, you can be right or you can be happy, but uh, that's not just a question for married couples. Actually, Barry Brownstein has a new essay just published today, and he's asking, are you choosing to be right or happy? Subtitle here is, others are not responsible for the choices you make. And as always, Barry delivers. The, his, his insights are so great on this. He starts with the, with the observation in his classic books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Dr. Stephen R. Covey urged us to begin with the end in mind. And Covey explains, each part of your life, today's behavior, tomorrow's behavior, next week's behavior, next month's behavior, can be examined in the context of the whole of what really matters most to you. Keeping that end, by keeping that end com- uh, clearly in mind, you can make certain that whatever you do on any particular day does not violate the criteria you've defined as supremely important and that each day of your life contributes in a meaningful way to the vision you have of your life as a whole. So Barry says, if we begin with the end in mind, if we consider our purpose, will that not direct our efforts automatically? And from here, he goes on to a quote from psychologist Dr. David K. Reynolds in his Audible program, Constructive Living, where Dr. Reynolds encouraged us to reflect on the means we use to fulfill our purpose. And this is the story he he gives to help teach this. If you get on a train in Denver and you want to go to San Francisco, but the train is headed for Chicago, no matter how long you ride that train, you will never arrive in San Francisco. No matter whether the train is the most popular train and is a fast, sleek, modern train, if it's headed for Chicago, you won't arrive in San Francisco. Even if all your friends are riding that train and all the people you respect and admire are on that train, if it's headed for Chicago, you will never reach San Francisco. So you want to keep in mind your destination when you get on that train. 
You want to keep in mind where you want to go. Think about that very carefully. Now, Barry Brownstein says Reynolds is helping us see that we can never reach our ends if we don't know the correct means. No matter how many people agree with you, if the means you use are are existentially invalid, that is, they're at odds with reality, you will be headed to the wrong destination. And I love the example he gives here, only because I've been guilty about this. I've been guilty of this very argument. You ever argue about how to load a dishwasher? Oh boy, he says, I started sharing a loading the dishwasher example when dishwasher arguments were mentioned by participants in my workshops. I pointed out that the hidden purpose of a dishwasher argument may be to feel like a victim of an uncaring partner. Some laughed, others were initially incredulous. The skeptic would say, well, why would I start a fight on purpose? It is just that loading the dishwasher correctly is really important to me. Now, before saying a word about the correct way, he says, I'd ask if part of their mind knew that friction would result from their words. Sheepishly, they'd answer, yes. They'd come to see that when they declared their dishwasher rules, being right was more important than a happy, harmonious relationship. So we often face crossroads. We choose between being right or being happy. And Barry says there's a place in us where our happiness does not depend on controlling others. Aristotle believed in, the, in what he called purpose, what he called telos of a human being. And he said that was to become happy. Now, for many, happiness seems elusive. Aristotle advised that living a virtuous life is the pathway to realizing our purpose of becoming happy. And Barry Brownstein says by reflecting on our purpose, we can live more virtuously. So, after delivering a day-long workshop on happiness, he says, I found a long queue of cars waiting to exit the self-service parking garage. At the head of each exit lane was a participant from the workshop, and the machine was not recognizing their parking vouchers. They were trying to receive help without success from a remote attendant. As I got closer, he says, another participant further down the queue rolled down her car window. She smiled good-naturedly and said, you set this up as a final exam, didn't you, Dr. B.? <laughs> now he says, I had not set up a final exam. Life serves them daily. And during those daily exams, we can focus solely on our secondary purpose, purposes, current tasks and felt needs, or remember our primary purpose of living from our highest values. Oh, I don't know why. That one really reached out and, and stuck with me. In her book, Insight, psychologist Dr. Tasha Urich encourages us to ask what rather than why questions. She says, when I feel anything other than peace, I say, what's going on? What am I feeling? What is the dialogue inside my head? What's another way to see this situation? What can I do to respond better? Barry says, asking, why is my partner loading dishes incorrectly is the beginning of trouble. Instead, ask, what is the source of my inner experience in this moment? If you think it is someone else or external circumstances, pause and ask yourself more what questions. We're not responsible for the behavior of others, but we are responsible for our interpretation of our experience. So things will probably not go exactly right for any of us today. The incessant ego narrator in our head will want to categorize every event and person for us, as for us or against us, rather. And our ego will likely not get everything it wants. And if our primary purpose is to get what we want, well, misery awaits. So he suggests take a moment, consider a relationship at work or home in which a shift in your purpose might be in order. Nothing external needs to change for you to choose the virtuous path to happiness. I like this. 
And it just, it cracks me up. You know, he uses the example of the parking garage and the, the uh, ticket to the automated attendant, not, uh, not really doing anything as, as people are trying to work on patience. Earlier this summer, I had the chance to participate in a, a church youth conference. And I won't go into a lot of details. It was a really special experience. It was, you know, three days or so, maybe four days up in the mountains, um, up near Oakley, Idaho, which by the way, this, this is just beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful settings I have ever seen. The campsite where we were set up was uh, literally you had a vista where you could look out and see 40, 50 miles off into the distance. It was so incredibly gorgeous. And the stated purpose, of course, was to bring the kids up there and to, to help them have a good, meaningful experience to draw them closer to God. And from that standpoint, I would say it was a, an immensely successful experience. How do I know this? Because I, because I felt that I had drawn closer to my creator as a result of, of participating in this. And, uh, and by the way, I'm not going to pretend that it was, it was an easy, you know, comfortable. Yeah. We just sat around on couches, eating grapes and, you know, talking scripture. You know. No, it, there was, there was a lot of work involved. There was a lot of self-examination that, that was involved. Um, it was kind of neat. And I came away from that to really just feeling, uh, a spiritual recharge to my batteries that I hadn't felt in a long time. It was really something I appreciated. And so I was on a little bit of a, a spiritual high as I'm coming off the mountain that, uh, that final morning where we finished everything up and I was like, okay, I'm getting a little bit of a jump on things. I got to get back to town. So I headed out and I started down the road and I'm just cruising along and had to stop and, you know, open and shut a couple of cattle gates. That's just, you know, the nature of getting where you're going. And as I'm going down, you know, I'm, I'm following my navigation. Um, I should have trust. I just should have trusted my, you know, intuition or uh, my my inner voice because my my navigation, my my phone was telling me, "Hey, turn on to this uh, this gravel road." I was like, "Well, I'm I'm on a paved road. I could I could go down this one," but I I followed the directions, and sure enough, about two miles down the road, I've got a flat tire. Okay, now. You have to understand, it is hot, I'm dirty, I'm tired, I, I'm hungry, I've got a ton of things waiting for me to do at home because I've had to put them off for the last few days, and, and I'm just, I'm very anxious to get home, and, and I've had this incredible experience where I'm just feeling as close to God as I've felt in a long time, and now I'm stuck because I can't get the lug nuts loose on my tire. I, I've mentioned this before, you know, it was, it was quite an experience. Whoever had tightened those lug nuts on before, I mean, really wanted to make sure they weren't going to come off. And and so as I sat there, first of all, I really, I was, I was like, how could this happen? Why me? You know, <laughs> full victim mode. But then there came a point where I was just like, okay, I got to accept this. This is a reality. I'm stuck here. I have water. I'm okay. I've got some shade. The car runs. I just can't, uh, just can't drive on a flat tire. And so while I'm waiting for, for help to arrive, I just kind of took, took it as a learning experience. Okay, God, what would you have me learn from this experience? And I'm not ashamed to tell you, I, I did spend some time in prayer. In fact, I specifically asked, hey, send me some help. Either, either inspire me as to how I can fix this with the tools I have at hand, or send me someone who has the knowledge or tools that I need to fix it. And you may think I'm weird for what I'm about to tell you, but uh, within about 10 minutes, three people showed up, one of whom had an impact wrench, 
Problem was solved and I was on my way very shortly. I'm not so I'm not so sure God didn't set up a final exam from that wonderful weekend. I guess we got to take those learning experiences as they come, right? This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being a patron of this program. If this scratches an itch or if it provides something that you feel like, hey, this is this is working for me. And I, I think I know other people who might benefit from it. Can I ask you a small favor? Tell them about it. That's it. Just, you know, let them know. Share a link if you have to, whatever. Um, point them toward my website, thebrianheidshow.com. But let others know that this is out there. So I watched with great interest here a few weeks ago as... Uh, as the 12-year-old boy in Colorado Springs was called on the carpet over his Gadsden flag and then calmly stood his ground and I think uh, maybe not humbly but uh, politely educated his teacher on how the Gadsden flag is not a symbol of slavery. Oh, the, the memes that have been circulating of the exasperated look on her face as she realizes this kid, you know, actually is standing on solid ground and she's not. But it, it just, it, it helps to illustrate one of the reasons why, I mean, this kid's going to a charter school. Okay, it's not like, oh, yeah, well, of course, that's what a public school would do. No, this was a charter school. You would, might expect that uh, things would be a little bit different, but not always. It helps to explain why homeschooling has become so much more mainstream in the past three years. And Ron Paul actually has an excellent commentary explaining why homeschooling is becoming more mainstream and also inviting parents to opt out of government-administrated um, woke schooling. He says a 12-year-old Colorado boy became a victim of woke education when he was taken out of class and told he could not return unless he removed a Gadsden flag or don't tread on me patch from his backpack. Now, the school backed down after the video went viral in which a school official told the boy and his mother the problem with the patch is that the Gadsden flag's origin is related to slavery and the slave trade. The school was criticized by individuals from across the political spectrum for seeming ignorance of the role the Gadsden flag played in the American Revolution. Among the critics was Colorado Governor Jared Polis, one of the few remaining Democrats willing to defend free speech from the woke mob. Ron Paul says, The incident reminded me of a 2009 Department of Homeland Security Fusion Center report warning that individuals with Gadsden flag bumper stickers or bumper stickers supporting uh, Ron Paul's presidential campaign or the Libertarian or Constitution parties were potentially dangerous extremists. He says, after I and many other Americans objected, the offending report was withdrawn. But the fact that it was issued in the first place, just like the fact that the Colorado student was ever removed from class for his Gadsden flag patch, shows how authoritarians view the don't tread on me symbol. He says the reason woke authoritarians hate the Gadsden flag has nothing to do with racism or extremism. It's because the flag represents a, re a rejection of authoritarianism and an embrace of liberty. Now, Benjamin Franklin originally used the rattlesnake to symbolize the rebellious American colonies. He chose the snake because the rattlesnake never begins an attack nor, when once engaged, ever surrenders. 
In other words, rattlesnakes follow the non-aggression principle that forbids the use of offensive force against another's person or property, but allows the use of force to defend against any violations of one's rights, including those committed by government officials. Now, in contrast, authoritarianism is rooted in the notion that politicians, bureaucrats, and their favored special interests have the right to tread on everyone. He says the smearing of the Gadsden flag as racist is just the latest example of how the woke left is using its power in American education and cultural institutions to discredit the symbols and ideals of limited government and free markets. He says the woke left views schools as a place to indoctrinate children into cultural Marxism rather than a place where children can gain a good education. And the rise of woke education is leading many parents to consider homeschooling. He says parents looking to provide their children a quality home-based education that promotes real learning that does not push a political agenda, but does instruct in the history and philosophy of liberty should look into his homeschooling curriculum. He says, my curriculum provides students with a well-rounded education that includes rigorous programs in history, mathematics, and the physical and natural sciences. The curriculum also provides instruction in personal finance. By the way, I bet they talk about real money as opposed to simply central bank-issued fiat currency. Students can develop superior communication skills via intensive writing and public speaking courses. Another feature of the Ron Paul curriculum is that it provides the students the opportunity to create and run their own businesses. What better way to learn the principles of the free market? Ron Paul says the government and history sections of the curriculum emphasize free market economics, libertarian political theory, and the history of liberty. He says, I encourage all parents looking at alternatives to government schools, alternatives that provide children with a well-rounded education that introduces them to the history and ideas of liberty without sacrificing education for indoctrination, to go to ronpaulcurriculum.com for more information about his homeschooling program. I know they were going to Brian, that sounds a lot like a commercial. Well, I suppose it could be. I'm sharing it, though, because... I think that uh, Ron Paul has been most consistent of all the commentators I have followed. And I think I followed him pretty faithfully for at least the last 25 years. This guy has, uh, has been right so much more than not. In fact, I can't think of a time he has been wrong um, principle wise on a given you know topic. So if you're looking for an alternative, particularly if you're considering homeschooling, maybe that's something you should consider. I didn't mean for it to sound like a commercial, but I realize it kind of does. All right, article of the day. This is a great one, and it's coming from my friend Dan Sanchez. Um, I got to tell you, Dan is a writer of, of great depth and insight, and I just recently learned he's also uh, fighting brain cancer at this time. And it's, it's been very interesting because he's taken this opportunity. Um, he's not sitting there wallowing in self-pity, and, oh, look at me, I'm such a victim. But he is, is using what he is going through and writing about how it is deepening his connection to God, which to me I think is a wonderful use of an extremely difficult situation. I, I just can't tell you how much I admire him for this. His, the article I'm sharing with you, and you'll find this in today's show notes, is uh, titled, The Deadly Dangers of a Life Adrift. Subtitle: Calm Waters Can Be Deadlier Than Stormy Seas. Listen to these insights keeping in mind that this guy's fighting a pretty serious battle of his own. In times of trials and tribulation, when our life's vessel is buffeted by the winds and waves of adversity, we often yearn for more placid waters. 
As we pitch and roll, we imagine that if only we could get back on an even keel, life would be so much better. But he says calm waters can be even deadlier than rough seas. Adversities to overcome can be a blessing. Hardships can harden you, keep you sharp, provoke you into purposeful action, rouse you into rapid decisiveness. Exigencies can make your priorities and often your plans obvious and straightforward. Now, of course, a stormy sea can also overwhelm and capsize you, but a Pacific Ocean has its own particular perils. For instance, an easy life can lure you into the fatal depths of a false sense of security. You let your guard down and lose your edge. You start to drift toward the siren songs of compulsions, like constantly checking your phone. Whims, a Ted Lasso marathon might be fun. Distractions, like taking a five-minute TikTok break that ends up lasting an hour. And temptations, like eating a whole sleeve of Oreos because it's there. He says, without adverse conditions forcing you to work the sails, you can become adrift. And if you drift long enough, eventually you find yourself lost at sea. Aimlessness becomes listlessness. Listlessness becomes anyway. Anyway becomes despair. So what's the alternative? Do we seek out misfortune intentionally so that it may, dis- it may discipline us? No. But he says, in the absence of externally imposed rigors, we must impose rigor on ourselves. And there are two ways to stay on course in calm waters and avoid the deadly dangers of drift. Number one, develop and follow routines. Plot regular trade routes for key parts of your days. Institute a morning routine that starts your day on the right foot. Design a tying up loose ends checklist that lets you leave work at the office instead of mentally bringing it home. Carve out a regular quality time with your loved ones, with family dinners and game nights. Formulate a bedtime ritual that eases you into a good night's sleep. Form strong habits that leave no psychic room for derailing distractions. And secondly, keep and consult next actions lists. This is what David Allen calls them, next actions list. Clear instructions for getting things done that make it easy to be productive. Draft them when you're sharp so that when you're not so sharp, you can just follow your own marching orders instead of having to figure out what to do. The easier you make it for yourself to intrepidly sail onward, the less prone you will be to drift. Make a habit of consulting your next next actions list whenever you're between tasks. That habit will be an anchor that pulls you back from chasing distractions. And he says, don't let the comforts and protections of a fortunate life in the modern world lure you into a life of frustrated potential, gnawing angst, and quiet desperation. Develop habits habits that prevent drift by providing aim and anchorage. I love all the shipping terms he's using here. Chart a challenging life course for yourself to fully feel alive. I really love the part that he's saying about adversity. And I say this because I know a lot of people right now who are going through some really deep waters of adversity. Hang in there. Trust the process. The process that is turning you into a diamond. I'm sorry, the heat and the pressure aren't fun. This is The Brian Hyde Show.